Hello, and welcome to the 43rd episode of the LI Law Podcast. I am your host, Sahava Schechter. The premise of this podcast is to feature issues, developments, and topics affecting the law and how it relates to the 8 million of us who live or work on Long Island, New York, which includes Nassau, Suffolk, Queens, and Kings Counties. Our guest on this 43rd episode is Daniel A. Johnston Esquire, an attorney who concentrates his practice in criminal defense, personal injury, and business and consumer litigation. Dan was a guest on our show for the 4th, 14th, 28th, and 42nd episode. And we had so much to talk about that we decided to do another episode together. If you have missed those shows, please be sure to check them out. Dan is a former prosecutor in the Nassau County District Attorney's Office who has also handled civil litigation defense matters. Please check out the show notes for a full description of Dan Johnson's credentials and contact information. And please keep in mind that we will not be providing legal advice to any specific questions. So Dan, here we are again. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Okay, so let's start on some issues we didn't get to in the last podcast. For example, there have been long DMV lines, Department of Motor Vehicle lines, due to undocumented persons getting driver's licenses. And there is an uproar by many residents here on Long Island. They want to go in for their renewal of their driver's license, or a 16-year-old wants to go in for a permit, and they're affected by the same lines as all of these undocumented persons. In addition, the Trump administration has frozen the global entry program as it affects New York State residents, some might say in retaliation. Long Island residents are not happy. What's going on? It's a big question. As to the lines at the DMV, I do think the DMV is starting to take steps to modernize their system to alleviate those concerns. A lot of the functions that the DMV provides are now available online, be that to get an abstract, renew your license. I mean, I have not personally visited the DMV in close to five years. Most of what you need to do is available online. And if you do need to go in for something specific, there is the ability to make appointments in advance so that you're not necessarily as affected by these lines as you otherwise would be. As to the Trump administration's retaliation against New York for adopting these provisions with removing global entry, I I think you're seeing only the beginning. I think that's a taste of what's to come. I I just want to interrupt and say my understanding is that the Trump administration wants ICE to be able to get access to the DMV records to see who these undocumented persons are so then they can go and round them up. And New York State is basically protecting undocumented persons who are coming forward and want to get driver's licenses. So first, can we talk about why it's in New York State's interest for undocumented persons to get driver's licenses? And what do you think about protecting these persons from the reach of ICE? Sure. And you got right ahead of me on the point I was going to make in terms of it it does appear that there's the potential that by passing this law and getting undocumented immigrants to apply for licenses, all you've done is created an accidental honeypot. Down the line, once you give it a year or two and people start to feel comfortable and more people feel like it's okay to go do it, all of a sudden federal agencies show up with search warrants signed by a federal judge and confiscate the database. And you have a very very unfortunate situation on your hands. And and I think that's a real possibility. I I don't think that's some conspiracy theory or anything like that. It, It makes too much sense to not be a possibility. In terms of keeping this database and information out of the reach of ICE, I don't think that's a realistic thing. New York state authorities are not gonna have the ability 
to prevent that disclosure. If they want to turn to the federal government and the federal agencies that come and tell them that they have their interpretation of the law wrong, good luck. That's all I can say. So you think that this database eventually will be made available to the federal government? If there's not a change in the administration in 2020, which I won't get into too much because right. it's not the topic of the show, right. if there is not a change in regime in 2020, absolutely. Okay. I think it's a matter of time. Why Why is it New York State's interest for undocumented persons to get driver's licenses? For simple administrative reasons. You have an incredibly large immigrant population here. It's got to be near or within the top three to five states in the country for number of undocumented immigrants. And the reality is there's administrative problems that come along with that. Uh, as it stands now, if someone is an undocumented immigrant and they get given some kind, they're caught driving and they're given some vehicle and traffic tickets, they show up to court, they pay them, and they're done. Okay, you've assessed points against their pseudo-license. They're essentially just assigned a client number by the DMV. Next time they get pulled over, they change their name by one letter, and there's no record of the previous interactions with the system, and they get assigned a new client ID, and there's nothing to just prevent this from continuing to happen. Most of, actually just about all vehicle and traffic matters that are violations, not crimes, don't come with the requirement that people are fingerprinted, so you're only left with someone's client ID, their name, and you know, in some cases, social security number, but that doesn't apply here, and not every undocumented immigrant has a tax ID. So it seems that an undocumented uh, person is kind of between a rock and a hard place. Do you go to get the license, or are you afraid that you will be discovered and you don't go? I would just say there's a long history of people being disappointed by placing their trust in the government. So with that, let's move on to the issue of facial recognition technology. So police are obtaining facial recognition technology from companies, private companies, which claim to have processed up to 3 billion, with a B, 3 billion images in their database. I actually saw a program on Jeff Bezos and Amazon last night on PBS Frontline about how, how even Amazon is getting into this market. The Suffolk County Police Department acknowledges that it is a customer of one of these database companies called Clearview AI. The New York Police Department may also be using similar software according to Newsday. So far, I haven't seen anything about the Nassau County Police Department. So, Dan, is Big Brother truly watching our move? Do you think this is a Fourth Amendment search and seizure violation of our image? And do, how does it affect Long Island residents? Under the Fourth Amendment, there's an entire analysis that goes into effect to determine if something was an unlawful search and seizure. And one of the considerations, one of the major considerations, is whether someone, a reasonable person, would have a reasonable expectation of privacy in those circumstances. So, for instance, someone driving a car and they get pulled over for speeding and suddenly the officer is ripping open ripping open their trunk and searching around under the circumstances a reasonable person would have had a reasonable expectation of privacy regarding their trunk especially because it was for a simple traffic violation so the way that applies to this AI and the photographs of people's faces being taken I don't think there's a fourth amendment violation there because when someone walks outside their home there's not a reasonable expectation of privacy. There's there's cameras in every single person's cell phone. There's satellite imaging. There's dash cams. There's security cameras everywhere. I don't think you can make an argument that anyone would have a legitimate expectation of privacy once they're out in public. Okay, but the difference here is that these images are being marketed 
to police departments who then use them, whether for lineups, for mug shots, to try to find alleged perpetrators. So isn't there a, a different standard? Or you're saying that because all of us, we all walk around, therefore there is no expectation of privacy no matter who the purchaser is. Well, I think there's really two questions that are there. One is the constitutional analysis as to whether or not it would be constitutional to use someone's picture taken out in public as evidence against them. So ultimately down the line, police officers buy the software, they run it, they run security footage from bank robbery and oh, they identify him through whatever. That's not a Fourth Amendment violation. That's what I'm saying. But in terms of reviewing it through the lens of is it fair for these companies to be taking your image and then making money off it without cutting you out a piece, so to speak, that's a whole different bag of worms. And that becomes a little more questionable. It depends, I would think, on the method of how they acquire the pictures. If it's on Facebook or Instagram and they're just pulling people's profile pictures, uh, these are things where people have already signed up for the terms and conditions that they're allowing their pictures to be used for whatever purpose the corporate entity wants to use it for. And if and then they're voluntarily putting their own pictures up. So, so that's that's the release in essence. Yes. That's the consent. That would be a situation where I don't think anyone has a real claim to challenge it. But if it's a company that's going around just taking people's pictures for no legitimate reason other than to sell them, you may have an issue there. Okay, well, I also have Ring, the, the doorbell Ring, which allows me to see who's at my front door even when I'm not there. By the way, Amazon has purchased Ring, and I understand that the police departments, various police departments, are also using Ring and Nest and all this other technology to also help them find criminals, find uh, alleged perpetrators of crime. Is there any expectation of privacy there in using this technology, this front door technology? It's my understanding that when you buy those systems and when you sign up for the software and everything else, similar thing, you're signing a release. I mean, I would say that it's it would be the equivalent of buying a camera if your camera was connected to the internet and it came with a release saying that the company was allowed to use whatever pictures you take. I mean, this is something where consumers have to start voting with their wallets. This isn't necessarily a legal issue as much as it is a moral issue. And it just seems that people... There is no outrage about these kinds of things to the level that there should be. If we went back 20, 30 years, I think if this was something that was happening, there would be a lot of backlash, and I, and I think there would be a serious PR problem. Now, it doesn't seem like people generally care that much. I mean, not to completely derail this, but... You know, just look at a couple of years ago. You had Edward Snowden with with bringing to light the fact that there was an incredible amount of spying and invasion of privacy far beyond what we're talking about today being conducted by federal agencies. And what was the public reaction? Oh, that's an interesting story. Actually, they, they reviled him. They said that Edward Snowden was a traitor. But I want to get back to, and I appreciate your point, but I want to get back to the issue of we're not just talking about alleged criminals here. We're talking about everyone on the street. So I'm not really sure that I want my my photo sitting in a database, which as you've you've suggested and you're correct, these companies are getting money for uh, without without my consent. So maybe one of the issues is when we're on Facebook or wherever we are and we don't read the terms of usage and we just check off, I agree, without reading all the fine print, maybe that's part of the problem. I would say this. I would say if it's coming in through Facebook and Instagram and Nest and 
Ring, and all these other things that people have voluntarily signed up for, there's not going to be anything there. Once you Even sign up, as a defense attorney, there's nothing you can do there. If your if your client, if some of the evidence against your client comes from one of these software, oh, I technology, would, I would make the I would use that as a hornet's nest for sure. I would argue that the software is not reliable, and they no one can actually explain how this black box works. They just plugged in my client's photograph, and and what some system from Seattle, Washington, told them it was my guy. How can you trust that? Of course, I would use that. Uh, I'm more talking in terms of looking at it from whether or not there's a legal remedy to be had for, for using these pictures and putting them into the database and then selling them. To that point, I, I don't believe there would be any type of legal remedy if it's done through Facebook or Amazon or anything that you've signed up for and basically signed away your rights to the company. But if it's if there's something to show that these companies are just going down the street taking picture, people's pictures, if that happens to anybody, I would be interested in exploring what options were available because to me that would be misappropriating somebody's image for your own profit right well we'll definitely follow this issue and i want to move on to our next issue involving martin tankleff who served 17 years in prison for killing allegedly killing his parents before being exonerated of that crime he is now admitted to the new york state bar after his release mr tankleff attended Toro law center in central islip and he now wants to practice in criminal and civil rights law. So what do you think that says about our profession? And are you surprised at all that Martin Tankleff wants to practice the area of law in which he was really uh, charged? I suppose you can view it through two different lenses, one of which is under the lens that he was completely or nearly completely exonerated, which means he didn't, at least as far as the law is concerned, he didn't do it. So... Based on that, this is a man who's experienced the absolute worst of what the criminal justice system can do to people. So I don't think there's anyone who, who is in a better position to take on the challenge and try to defend others against what he suffered through. I'm glad he's a member of the bar. To make a slightly bolder point, just in a hypothetical, if this was someone who had committed, who had in fact committed some terrible crime and he was in jail for 20 years and then he came out and decided to go the route of becoming a lawyer, I would accept them to the bar as well. We tend to forget that the whole point of a criminal justice system is for people to pay their debt to society. And once the debt is paid, then the debt is paid. People should be allowed to return to a life, to build a life for themselves. And, and the fact that we have so many issues and obstacles and hurdles that we throw in front of people who have been convicted of crimes, how do you expect them to return to a life where they can make it in a good way in a right. good wholesome way right where they can't find a job they can't make money that no one wants to rent to them or, or or have any kind of housing arrangement for them you're right we handicap convicts they're not even allowed to vote in elections it seems that this that society does not view this as they've paid their debt to society so I agree with you. It, it is a, an unfortunate thing. So, Dan, we've spent a lot of time talking about criminal cases, and you also handle civil cases. Would you uh, have an example for our listeners of a teachable moment in one of your civil litigation cases? Sure. Uh, I've been dealing with a number of car accidents lately, uh, both on the defense and the plaintiff's side. And I really want to stress to people, when they're involved in an accident, and they're injured, not to jump to conclusions on their own, and definitely to seek out the assistance of medical personnel 
and an attorney who's experienced in that area. I had a case very recently where a woman was involved in an accident. She did everything right that she was supposed to do. She called for the police. She made an insurance report. She made a police report. Uh, she did go to the hospital. She did everything she was supposed to do. And when she came to me, she described her injury as a minor fracture and she was doing physical therapy. And that was the way she reported it to the not only her own insurance, but to the other side's insurance as well. And typically, especially if you're seriously injured, you shouldn't be talking to the other side's insurance company without representation because they're going to seize on any weakness or issue they see in your case and they will try to exploit it. These are businesses that are in the business of making money. And if they can avoid paying out money, they will. So this woman who went to the hospital for a fracture and sought physical therapy told the other insurance company that she's viewed it as a minor injury and she was recovering. And that's what they stuck with. So I ordered the records. As it turns out, this was not a minor. This was not a minor fracture whatsoever. This was a very serious fracture that ended up requiring the use of multiple plates and screws to put her, to put her back together. And they have numerous complications that can come down the line, including further surgeries. And this is all detailed in the hospital records. So it, it would appear that by trying to just plow ahead and trying to be polite to the other insurance company and to try and downplay the situation, this person may have handicapped themselves from receiving the recovery that they should be getting out of this. There, there's no telling what kinds of future complications this type of injury could have. And as it stands, that type of injury is usually valued at anywhere from 400000 up to over a million dollars for an injury. But by undercutting her own theory of liability and damages, I can't say that the case is ruined. It's not because there's records and everything else. But it just goes to show that in just about any situation that requires an attorney, be it criminal, personal injury, business litigation, the earlier you get the attorney involved, the better off you are because you don't know what you don't know. And very good advice. Thank you very much, Dan. And that's it for our 43rd episode. Thank you, Daniel Johnston, for coming back on the podcast. Always a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much, Zahava. Appreciate it. And to our listeners, be sure to download this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you are there, please review us with a, a rating that might start. I just heard on the LA Law podcast that 4,000 low-income senior citizens on Long Island are in danger of losing meals and food shipments as of March 2000. 20. New York State's Commodity Food Supplement Program is looking for a charitable organization to continue the program here on Long Island, which expired at the end of 2019. Without a provider to provide the food shipments, these senior citizens will be cut off entirely from this food source. The LI Law Podcast is your source for local tips which educate and entertain. Thanks for listening.